My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to America. I'll be one of my friends. I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. With the first half of 2021 in the rearview mirror, what are the major trends that define the last six months? And can they tell us anything about the next six months so we can make some money off them? After a day where the Dow gained 104 points, S&P advanced 0.34% new record, and Nasdaq edged up 0.01%, another new record. I see a lot to like in the second half. However, I recognize that there's some real negatives here. Breath is bad. Treasuries seem to be signaling some sort of slowdown with yields falling to ridiculously low levels. I mean, that's why tech keeps soaring, because those are the type of growth stocks that thrive when the economy cools off. But those are not major themes. They're just the kind of daily reportage that makes you little to no money. It's not why you come here. We want longer term trends that we can return to time and time again to make money. Tonight, I've got seven of them. Seven tectonic shifts tectonic shifts for 7-7, which happens to be July 7, 7-7-7. I thought it was cool. All right, anyway. First, uh, this is one that doesn't get enough attention that David Faber and I talk about constantly. We can't believe no one thinks about it. That's an outfit called Engine Number 1. Nom- you ever heard of them before this? They nominated three members for Exxon Mobil's board of directors. They waged a proxy fight against management on the premise that the world's biggest oil company wasn't doing enough to protect the environment. And they won. The whole battle only cost him $12 million. John D. must be rolling over in his grave. The engine number one win was a major wake-up call to anyone who thinks you can safely ignore environmental, social, and corporate governance-focused investing. That's ESG for short. To me, it says, if you're destroying the environment, we're coming for you. Be prepared for a challenge. If these guys could spend just $12 million to win three board seats at the most storied oil company of all time, you better believe their strategy will be repeated, especially since it looks like the index funds sided against management. Second theme that's, that's built to last, the hybrid workplace. And one of the most surprising aspects of the pandemic was the ease with which businesses embraced not coming into the central office five days a week. What started as an emergency measure has now become commonplace. Even as the world goes back to normal, many people continue to work from home. Nobody saw this coming. Don't tell me you did. Home and retail sales have spiked as people spent their stimulus money setting up home offices in the suburbs while buying entirely new sets of clothes. They moved to the country. Some banks are insisting that people come in to install a sense of teamwork. But it looks like the majority of large enterprises have accepted that hybrid work is here to stay. They didn't twist their arm very long. Now, that has caused a boom of so many things. Housing, cars, it's a major reason why inflation spiked earlier this year. Fortunately, Fed Chief Jay Powell obviously understands that the spike in demand caused by the transition to hybrid work is temporary once we're all transitioned. So there's no need to raise interest rates because of that. By the way, where's, where's Jay working? Third, disturbing, the Chinese government has taken a hard turn since President Biden was elected. They're clearly, they're clearly going for it in China. President Xi seems to be testing us almost daily, doesn't he? Most recently, with the huge losses, he mandated. It wasn't about privacy. He mandated losses after the DDI IPO. Mandated. I always ask CEOs of worldwide companies, what's the biggest worry? And increasingly, they're afraid China will make some kind of push for Taiwan. Now, this could easily set off World War III because our government's tacitly committed to protecting Taiwan's autonomy. 
Is that likely? Probably not. But the risk is much higher than at any time in decades. I think she will squeeze Taiwan until it breaks his way. I actually don't know how he's going to do it, but I know he's going to try. Fourth theme, while oil takes a deserved break here, I think we're going to begin to hear a lot about $100 crude. Why? Because in the first half, we got a new anti-fossil fuel White House that caused oil companies to rethink their plans. They're much less eager to drill, which also happens to be good business. Meanwhile, demand is soaring. None of this would matter if Saudi Arabia won't, uh, would boost production or at least get an OPEC agreement. But they're enjoying these higher prices. Prices. Wait, look, without renewed production both here and abroad, the oil producers in the Permian Basin should see their stocks shoot higher. Crude is about the only commodity that hasn't rolled over. I just don't see how it can right now. So, Devon, Chevron, Pioneer Natural Resources. Those are your three. They are investable. Fifth thing, we have way too many overpriced IPOs. We're in fairytale land now. Not in like the, It really is just the dot-com period. It's 1999-2000, where uh, companies come public at ridiculous high levels because there's a ton of demand, and we had no idea how to value them because the, the uh, venture capitalists keep bidding them up and bidding up, and they're not going to let the deal come below where they just paid. And that means insiders can just tell the underwriters, here's the price. I saw this happen at the street.com in 1999. Radical overvaluation by the big investors who examined the comps and thought the company's worth a fortune. I fought the billion-dollar opening hammer and tongs. We don't want an overpriced, overheated IPO market. Too many needless deals. It's like anything can go public. Hey, why don't we take public by coffee cart guy, Max Sood, uh, where every day is Friday. It's right across the street from the exchange. No deals too small. It's ridiculous, and it always ends badly when this much merchandise is created this rapidly, with insider selling coming up six months from now. And it will be just a monstrous and notorious pace. Once insiders can sell, it is going to get ugly. Theme number six, ransomware attacks have gotten so out of control that we hear about them constantly. How about the ones that haven't happened? How about the smaller businesses they're targeting? I'm not kidding. They are targeting small and medium-sized businesses. I know this. We have a bunch of, of cybersecurity companies that are very good at stopping threats. Think CrowdStrike. Hey, this new Sentinel-1, Okta, Zscaler, Palo Alto Networks. Most businesses have dramatically underspent on cybersecurity. Many haven't updated their system in ages. It's embarrassing. Child's play for hackers to break into them, especially when they've got state sponsors in Russia or China. We need to be able to play offense, which is the best defense. Just ask Deep Instinct. That's a privately held outfit we had on last week that guarantees you won't get hacked. And it's all about playing offense. Right now, we're all waiting for the next big hack. The Equifaxer target of our era hasn't happened yet, but I think it's just a matter of time, especially now that cryptocurrencies allow digital ransoms to be paid with hardly a trace. I don't like the criminal aspects of crypto. I've railed on that. And I worry about the stability of the crypto ecosystem, which is under attack from China and has a weak link in the form of Tether, the third largest cryptocurrency backed by questionable resources. We need to see what kind of commercial paper Tether owns. I don't know a bond guy who has sold them paper in this country. Do you? Let me know on Twitter. Call me a tether skeptic. Finally, there are the meme stocks. I used to think that it was a decent name for the game these traders are playing back when it was just AMC and GameStop at the end of January. Oh, those were huge successes. Still are. And both stocks are now basically controlled by the Reddit contingent. I think it's fine if these people want to bankroll AMC and GameStop by bidding up their stocks, allowing the companies to sell shares at incredibly elevated prices until AMC's taking a break at it. But that doesn't make them good investments, as we saw when both stocks got obliterated today. I marvel at the craziness of what's happening to the stock of, say, Newegg, Newegg Commerce, a Chinese direct seller of home computer parts, among other things, which rallied 148% today on 75 million shares on a change in how it can assemble... PCs to customers who design them. 
148%. Memesters! The latest meme stocks feel like a game of musical chairs, where people trade tens of millions of shares in stocks with very small floats. They, these are just one-day games, where the original traders bag the stocks, then dump the stocks, uh, otherwise known as BGL. Bag them, they gun them, and they liquidate them. They're playing BGL. I am going to examine all this from foul play. I wish this is he would join me. Bottom line, there are seven themes for the seven, day, seven days of the seventh month. I think they'll have staying power, which means they can be relied upon to make you money, either on the long or short side. Now that we've entered the second half of 2021, Jimmy Chill wants to take questions. Seth in Texas. Seth. Hey, how's it going, Jim? Seth, it's never um, been better, frankly. How about you? Oh, fantastic. Better than I deserve, sir. Um, so really quickly, Pinterest. I feel like there's multiple X potential with only 26 cents per average user compared to Facebook at $32 in the United States. What do you think long term and short? I think that it's very hard to knock this stock down because we know that Microsoft apparently was interested in buying them. I don't think that Ben Silberman wants to sell. I think it is a good it's a kind, gentle site like next door. And I like the stock. It was undervalued for a very long time. Can we go to Bo, who probably knows in Florida? Bo! Booyah, Jimmy. Thank you for everything you do with Action Alerts Plus. You're oh, a pioneer, you. my, friend, my friend. Thank you, buddy. You know, I'm, question, I'm, driving, I'm going crazy working on that thing. Let's go. <laughs> my question today is about Slumberjay. With oil at $75 per barrel, airline bookings are above pre-pandemic levels. Production remains at 5.8 million barrels per day below pre-pandemic levels. And with the reopen economy, as far as summer travel coming back, Hurricane season and holiday travel right behind that with its strong balance sheet and its recent 15% dip from its highs. Would this be a buying opportunity wow. for Schlumberger? I'm going to fire three different analysts who covered and hire you. I have to tell you that I think this guy, uh, Lapooch, is doing a real good job. I think they've really gotten it together. Uh, I am surprised how well they've gotten it together. And I share with you general enthusiasm for Schlumberger, which is still the best in the industry. No offense, Halliburton. You know, I love you. All right. On the seventh day of the seventh month, I'm giving you seven investable themes for the rest of 2021. Oh, man, tonight, last year, millennials topped baby boomers for the first time as new car buyers. Did you know that? And those millennials were nearly twice as likely to shop for and buy a vehicle entirely online. So that's why we're going to sit down with the CEO of Carvana. Notice it's Vana to find out if the trend could continue. Then, how much longer could the market keep climbing? I'm going to take, uh, uh, let's go up the charts, take the temperature of the averages. And it's David versus Goliath when it comes to the trade desk versus Google. I'll find out how the former could come out on top. I'm going to sit down with the CEO following the launch of its latest platform. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1 800 743 CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Weeks ago, I highlighted a pair of dueling analyst reports about the stock of Carvana. 
That's the web-based used car retailer. It's been an incredible long-term performer, one of the best there is. It came public at 15 a little over four years ago. It's now $315. Even though Carvana's been a longtime Kramer fave, we momentarily sided with the bearish analysts. That had nothing to do with the company itself, which is tremendous. And everything to do with the possibility of difficult comparisons in the second half, not to mention the fact that the stocks had a huge run. I'm also concerned about what happens to the used car market once the automakers ramp up production. But given this company's incredible track record, I want to give them a chance to tell me why I'm wrong. So let's check in with Ernie Garcia III, the co-founder and chairman and CEO of Carvana, get a better sense of where his company's headed. Mr. Garcia, welcome back to Minute Money. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Okay, so Ernie, why should I not be worried of the second half of the year when we know that people can go back to meeting people, uh, don't need necessarily to do it automatically, and they can meet people because the, we've got the pandemic under control, and perhaps car companies can produce more cars, which might reduce the value of used cars, and everybody's moved who has to move, so maybe everyone's already bought their cars. Sure. Well, I think there's a lot going on there. Um, I think there's been a lot going on in the macro economy over the last you know, two years, give or take. I think to us, what we focus on is, is our customers and, and focus on ourselves. And I think if you look back to you know, Q1 of 2019 uh, versus Q1 of 2021, you know, the auto industry is in a really similar spot. From a macroeconomic perspective, we had a pandemic, and then we had stimulus, and then we had you know, vaccination rates and, and more stimulus, and we've had supply constraints. We've had all these things that have happened. Um, but the industry is flat. You know, if you look at 2019 Q1 to 2021 right. Q, Q1, the industry in general is flat. If you look at Carvana, you know, we've grown by two and a half times. We've grown our GPU by $1,200. We've levered EBITDA by 600 basis points. So I think you know, what we do is we focus on our customers, and, and by doing that, uh, we think that we're well-served in the long haul, and we'll continue to do that. And we, we all think the macroeconomic environment right now, at least, is, is great. Um, but, but in the end, you know, all that matters is the quality of experience you deliver to your customers, your unit economics compared to your competitors, um, and then you know, how good a job you do executing every day when you come in. Okay, so Ernie, let me understand your business model. I told you that I uh, bought a car and returned it. Uh, I don't know how much that cost you, but the goodwill that you bought from me is huge. I have to feel like you can overpay a little bit from dealers because you have a goodwill model. But I haven't been able to figure out how you've improved the gross profit per unit in a goodwill model. Sure. Well, I I mean, I think it's it's a lot of hard work over a lot of time from a, a lot of great people inside the company. So. You know, we're a pretty deeply vertically integrated company. When you buy a car from us, it's a car that we bought um, probably these days from another customer. It's a car that we've put $1,000 of parts and labor into to certify and bring it up to our standards. It's a car that we're going to deliver to you ourselves. Um, you know, you're going to probably get financing through us, which we provide um, using our own services. And so because we're doing so much of the work, there's just fewer players in between. And that puts us in a spot where we can invest in low prices, but also invest in a great experience for our customers. But you do admit that in times you do overpay a little bit versus a dealer when you buy a car. Well, so, I mean, I think, listen, any company can make mistakes here or there, but I think it all comes out in the averages. So I think there's, you know, very clear ways to to see that inside of our financial reporting. If you look at our wholesale profit per wholesale vehicle, that's when we buy a car from a customer and then we go sell it at auction instead of selling it retail. Um, we report what our profits are on those cars. And, and on average, they're, they're very good and they've been improving um, year over year. So I think you know, our team does a great job with that as well because we have access to so much visibility of so many consumer-facing transactions. Um, you know, we put a lot of effort to, to being really smart about how we value cars and paying the right price. And then, you know, because we have that simplified model, we pick up the car from you and then we sell it directly to other customers if we can or go sell it mm-hmm. at wholesale if it doesn't meet our standards. Um, there's a lot of costs removed from the system, and so we can give you a, a great offer and still make money ourselves. All right, so, Ernie, look, you're, you're looking to add 
1,500 workers after debuting in the Fortune 500. Congratulations, the third fastest growing company ever to get in the Fortune 500. How do you find 1,500 workers? I mean, that is in this environment. Isn't it impossible to find the people you need? Sure. Well, I think, I think finding great people is always hard. Um, but I think you know, if you've got a company that, that has a real mission, that's fun to work at, that's lucky enough to be enjoying a little bit of success, um, it's a pretty exciting prospect for a lot of people. And, and we put a lot of effort into making that prospect exciting. You know, we've recently gone to $15 minimum wage. We put a lot of effort into our career pathing. Um, you know, inside our inspection centers that you brought up, 80% of people in the line lead position were promoted from within the company. Um, so we've got a, a really nice offering for, for different people across all the different operational functions to come in and work at Carvana and be a part of what we're building. Okay, so I see Lithium Motors every week. They seem to buy another dealership or two dealerships. Uh, they claim that they're well. No, I'm, they're nice guys, but they they think that they can take you on. Uh, is there room for Lithia and Carvana and Vroom? Let's throw them in. Uh, you know, there's. It's a big market. Um, it's a big market with 40 million transactions, and in last quarter we were a little bit less than one percent of it. Um, you know, that said, we've got big eyes. We think we've got the best customer experience out there. We think we've got the, the best business model and the most scalable business model. And so, you know, we're focused on growing really fast, uh, you know, through all the different channels that we discussed earlier. And, and we're focused on our customers and we're focused on us. And we think that that'll uh, serve us well in the long run. Uh, one last question. Uh, let's just say that you want to continue to grow the way you are growing. Can you make can you be profitable, say, in two years, despite, you know, in other words, your growth is astounding, but your gross profit would indicate that you might be profitable in 2023. So I, I think we've made a ton of progress. And, and you know, as you said, prior to, to the pandemic, we grew at triple digit rates every single year. And every single year, we also levered EBITDA margin. We grew gross profit per unit, and we've continued that. Um, and so, you know, we're continuing to grow really quickly. We're continuing to grow uh, gross profit per unit. You know, last quarter, uh, we had negative 1.3% EBITDA margin, which is a huge improvement, over 600 right. base points from just two years prior. So I think if we keep serving our customers well and, and we keep kind of benefiting from scale and all the work that everyone's putting into it, um, our, our prospects are, are very bright. It sure does seem that's the case. That's Ernie Garcia, co-founder, chairman, CEO of Carvana. Once again, congratulations to Fortune 500, the third fastest grower to get in. That is terrific. Those are terrific numbers. Great to see you, sir. Thank you. Thank you. Look, I mean, look, it is just, it's a good company. And the short sellers really did get this one wrong. They're running a good business, and they're going to start making money. Their money's back here. Coming up, Hope Springs Eternal. But in the dog days of summer, the VIX is in. Go off the charts with Kramer and face down the fear index. Next. Here's what you keep asking. I listen to you and you say, how much longer can this market keep climbing? S&P 500 won't stop flirting with new highs. Bond yields plummeting. Seagulls will Surprising lack of confidence in the economy, right? It's not just foreign buying. When, uh, when the benchmark 10-year Treasury pays with just 1.32%, that may be the bond market's way of telling you business might be weaker ahead. As for the stock market, it's got horrible breath, like mask breath, meaning not many groups are working. Uh, uh, no amount of listing can, can make it better. Bad breath often comes before a sell-off. Plus, the volatility index, also known as the fear gauge, had an insane spike yesterday before pulling back near the end of the session as the market rebounded from its lows. That tells you that people are getting worried. 
So now we've got to ask what could drag us down. Well, maybe it's the stimulus winding down. Maybe it's the continued deterioration of our government's relationship with China. We could easily spiral into another intense trade war, or possibly worse if something insane happens in the Strait of Taiwan. There's been a huge military buildup in China. Nothing would surprise me, given their supreme leader increasingly seems to be taking his cues from Joseph Stalin. Although even Stalin wasn't crazy enough to start World War III, and an invasion of Taiwan could do just that. I mean, look, these are legitimate concerns, people. Lots of reasons to wonder if the bull might be on its last legs. So what do we have to do? Tonight, we're going to take the temperature of this market. Yep, we're going off the charts with the help of Mark Sebastian. Man, this guy's been real right. He's a brilliant technician. So the co- He's the founder of OptionPit.com, as well as my colleague at RealMoney.com, my blog. Now, Mark has a great track record, both for us on the show and, of course, his professional career. As our resident volatility expert, he's gotten it very right. And right now, he's got a simple message. Jimmy, chill. This market can rally for much longer than you think. Why? Okay, what is this saying? Because this is really unemotionally positive. Okay, remember that the CBOE volatility index, the VIX for short, has a strong inverse correlation with the stock market. When the averages go up, the VIX tends to go down and vice versa. When they both go in the same direction, that often means stocks are about to change trajectory. Remember, we're always looking for a trajectory change. That's a catalyst. And that's why we care about the fear gauge. It's why people got nervous about yesterday's VIX spike. I know I did, even though the volatility index did exactly what it's supposed to do when the S&P 500 goes lower. All right, so now let's look at the pictorials here. Uh, This is the VIX spike, okay, uh, that we saw. This is a chart of the volatility index. This is over the last 18 months, okay? If you're worried that the VIX is headed higher, and therefore the market's inevitably higher, Sebastian says, hold your horses. Let me come over to this side, because what you can see is that it's quite obvious that if you're worried about the VIX, well, you're not that smart. Last year, when the pandemic got rolling in February and we realized there was no going back, the stock market crashed. Now I'm going to go back to here, okay, like Vanna White of Charger. And the VIX soared into the stratosphere. Since then, though, Sebastian points out that the volatility index has been in a huge downtrend, making consistently lower lows and lower highs while the stock market roared. That's correct. That's what should happen. That's rational. It's reasonable. Next. At the beginning of April, the VIX finally broke down below 20. Since then, that's been a powerful ceiling of resistance, okay? Uh, It's only managed to get above 20 on a whopping eight days during this period. And the longest it's been able to hold above that level was during a three-day stretch in May. Sebastian makes it clear that the volatility index isn't exactly itching to go higher. It's still within the same downtrend that defined its trajectory for the last 15 months. Reasonable, rational. Hey, but how about that crazy pop yesterday? Let's zoom in on the action. The VIX jumped from 15, this is an actually you can see the minutes here, from 15 to nearly 18 at its highs before pulling back to 1644 at the close. Rather than freaking out about the spike, though, Sebastian wants to put it in perspective. First off, whenever we come off a long weekend, did you know this? The volatility index experiences what's known as the weekend effect. All else equal, that makes it rally about 0.8%. On top of that, the S&P 500 sold off yesterday morning, which is when the VIX jumped the most, precisely what it's supposed to do. When the S&P recovered most of its losses, the VIX gave away most of its gains. Reasonable, rational, normal. So when we, when, when we finally get a sustained sell-off, Sebastian likes to look at how the volatility index is moving in comparison to the market. So now I want you to check out this pair of daily charts. The first is the S&P 500, and then it's over the VIX, okay? S&P 500 and the VIX. When the market rises and the VIX goes up along with it, that usually means we're approaching a top. Surprising, reliable signal. Remember, they call it the fear gauge for a reason. When the fear keeps climbing, even as stocks rally, 
That tells you something is wrong. But what happens when the S&P jumped to a new high in recent weeks? Well, look at this. From June 22nd to July 2nd, the S&P advanced 106 points. Was the fear gauge rising along with it? No. The VIX was going lower, just like it's supposed to when the market rallies. Over the same period, the volatility index fell from 16.66 to 15.07, briefly dipping to the 14s. In other words, the market accepted that rally. There was no spike in fear. As long as the VIX goes down when the S&P goes up, Sebastian says that the rally is likely to continue, that it's a strong one. And there's no reason to panic about yesterday's VIX spike because it happened when the S&P was going down. We now we know what it looks like when the volatility index rises along with the market, because that's what happened in April. Okay, just this is right before the S&P got slammed. But that's not what we're seeing now. You can see this thing goes up and then that predicate that's uh, it predicts the decline. Sure, there are a lot of potential risks. You know, I am so concerned about China. It actually kept me up last night. I'm concerned about the because well, I'm worried about this Joe Stalin thing. I'm concerned about the signals to the bond market. There are all sorts of ways this market could be derailed. But the bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Mark Sebastian, suggest that the S&P 500 is headed higher, that Jimmy Chill's got a chill, and the negative trends I pointed out at the top of the show, at least some of them, shouldn't lead to anything too frightening. Yesterday showed us that the VIX can give us a quick, violent move higher when the market sells off. So there's some fear lurking, but that fear vanishes when stocks go up. For now, Sebastian says, that's what really matters. You know what I want to do? I want to go to Cammie in Texas. Cammie. Booyah, Jim. I'm a longtime fan and sure appreciate all you do for us home gamers. Oh, thank you. Great. My stock question is a reopening play on Las Vegas, and I've used this pullback as an opportunity to buy, but the stock dove down another 4%, so I wanted to know if I'm missing something or should I buy more. Stock oh. symbol wins. Great question. Okay, my charitable trust bought more today. Why did we buy more? First of all, I, I, I think people don't understand the way this business works, okay? This is a business that is connected to China. And right now, China has another wave of illness. And China's kind of doing things that are making it so that people are nervous about spending. Las Vegas is on fire. I say you buy off of Las Vegas and you buy this ahead of football season. We bought more. The stock acts terribly. But that's okay. We think it's a good stock. I want to go to David in Michigan. David. We are Kramer, Oracle of CNBC. Oh, man, you're nice to say that. Hey, Oracle's up big today. Did you see that? It's up three bucks. Okay. No, I didn't. No, it's, really, it's, op- it's flying after that not great quarter. Go ahead. I opened a position in Caterpillar relying on a reopening infrastructure bill. It's down 12% since I bought it, and I don't see any good news. Is it a sell, a hold, or a no, buy? No, 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 no. I mean, what you have to do is just kind of separate it from the infra, from the infra bill. It is doing incredibly well. Uncle B is doing terrifically. I actually want to put the stock as a stock that is resting. I'd be a buyer, not a seller, of the stock of Caterpillar. All right, look, I went to Mark Sebastian yesterday because I was really worried about that spike. And I was. I wasn't Jimmy Chill. And he says, no. The charts suggest that as long as the VIX falls when the S&P climbs, the rally is likely to continue. Hey, we got much more mad money ahead, including my exclusive with Trade Desk. Hey, they're taking on Google. Could the company's approach to advertising be a winning strategy? I've got the CEO fresh off its latest launch. Plus, so now, now, now you want to buy Apple? I'll tell you how you, uh, what you might have missed the bottom and actually 
who made you miss the bottom. It's a vindictive piece. Just kidding. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. with the COVID winners that sold off hard earlier this year before rebounding like crazy in the last couple of months? Take the Trade Desk. That's a Kramer fave technology company that helps businesses manage data-driven digital advertising campaigns. And they are really good at streaming video. The stock's been a gigantic long-term winner as advertising dollars continue to migrate from traditional channels to the Internet. And that's their strength. But in the first few months of 2021, the stock got cut in half. As the world went back to normal, investors decided to sell the trade desk. Uh, they, they didn't even ask questions. Now, it doesn't help that big tech giants like Apple and Google keep announcing new privacy features that will make it harder for advertisers to track your activity on the Internet. However, thanks to the rotation back into fast-growing tech stocks, the trade desk has come roaring back since its lows in mid-May, like many other stocks. That includes, by the way, the 1.4% gain today after the company announced a new digital media trading platform, Solomar, which I think could be a huge deal. Earlier today, we got a chance to speak with Jeff Green. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of The Trade Desk. Take a look. Jeff, this is a huge day for The Trade Desk. Solomar, why is it important? Solomar is really important because there's this really important moment that is happening right now for marketers around the world, which is they're expected to do more with less. And because of the global pandemic, connected TV has just been on the rise. And so they need a new product to meet all of these new and changing uh, issues that are facing them. And that's what this product is. All right. Well, look, I think that we all know that Google is the king of advertising, both getting ads, but also rating ads. How can you, a little company, Jeff, take Google on? Because that's what you're really doing. Yeah. So we are taking on Google. I wouldn't call them the king. I think that's still I I think the throne is still up for grabs. But the reason why they've done so well is because they've monetized Google.com and YouTube.com really well. We think that advertising is less about navigation like Google.com and more about winning hearts and minds across a very competitive media landscape, which has hundreds, thousands of different properties, websites, apps in it. And so we just want to make certain that we're objectively deciding Uh, which ads an advertiser should use. And our objectivity is something that Google doesn't have because they're trying to monetize their sites. Okay, before I get to the advertisers, tell me as a consumer why I want Solmar and what does it do for me that's better than before? So uh, right now, especially in connected TV, but also in journalism, also in music, there's a tremendous amount of pressure on the Internet for it to perform. And so, perform what, means. So, perform meaning that you generate enough revenue to pay for the content that okay. you're creating. And so, as you have perhaps seen on connected TV, you used to only see somewhere between zero and two ads right. per break, and now you're seeing that start to go up. Yeah. And so, the vision that we have for the internet is to preserve the quid pro quo of the internet, where you see relevant ads in exchange for free content. Right. And if you can make those relevant and, and leveraging data that is extremely sensitive to the consumer, then you can make it so that you are only showing two ads, three ads. They're highly relevant, highly effective. And most importantly, that generates the revenue so that the consumer can keep getting the very best of TV and journalism and music. And then also those companies can stay in business. Without that happening, something falls apart. But a bell went off in my head when you said sensitive data. We are seeing hacks everywhere. Do I want my data uh, exposed? 
you definitely don't want your data exposed as it relates to anything that's personally identifiable or anything that's sensitive to you. Most people that are trying to sell you soda or chicken or whatever are, are not interested in any of the personal uh, sensitive data. They're much more interested in macro anonymized data so that they can make more informed decisions and just put relevant stuff in front of you. And that's what makes the internet work and that's the sort of internet that we're trying to create for us and for our kids. Right. There's an old saying that advertising technically reaches half the people you want, but we don't know which half. That goes away. With Solomar, correct? It does. That's exactly what Solomar is after, is trying to help right-size the insight and data for marketers so that they can leverage their data to make more informed decisions, but also for us to point in an obvious way at what's working and what isn't working. Let's let the machines make the decisions that, uh, uh, that they can make, which is effectively to run math, but let's especially empower the people that are doing the buying so that they can... Uh, provide relevant ads for people and they can be more effective so that that flywheel spins faster and the quid pro quo is preserved on the internet. Oh, well, let's talk about a gigantic company that has come to you and you have a great relationship with. Number one retailer in the world, not Amazon, Walmart. What are you doing for them? So uh, I think Walmart has had this institutional epiphany, which is that instead of leveraging its data simply to create a media business like many of the big tech companies have done, and they could easily do that, right. they instead decided to partner with us and then we together would, would do what they call close the loop, which make it so that when you're showing ads at the very beginning of a process about any particular product, whether it's about soap or about soda or chocolate, anything, it, to, to make it so that you can show the efficacy of that advertising spend at the end of the funnel when people buy it. Right. So if you can close the loop between what's bought at a Walmart and what ads are shown, then what helps Walmart is that every product owner in the world is optimizing their media spend to sell more product at Walmart. They've been the first to trailblaze this new way of doing things and, and, and really sustain the open internet, but they will not be the last. Okay, now, uh, I am very proud of the fact that I interviewed you very early and felt that you were David versus Goliath. I continue to believe that. Most people are sensitive. No, they're afraid to go against Google, but you're doing it. Now, you still have Wall Street pieces like this, the cookie lives for another day for in favor of Google. Then here, Davidson saying not the blowout some expected. I mean, should we be worried that Trade Desk is biting off more than it can chew? No, I don't think so. And the reason why is uh, we are not trying to compete with Google at their own game. So okay. they're, they're this big uh, entity and we're small and agile, the way that you compete with Google is not to go head to head. It is instead for us to join forces with hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands of other companies who just want a competitive market. So instead of trying to control the market, we're trying to create a competitive one. And we want to empower lots of other people. We are not trying to disrupt advertising. We are trying to enable all of these companies who've been in the space for a long time so that the landscape is competitive and sustainable. Well, last question. Uh, I have begged companies with a high dollar price to split so that individuals whom we all want, your kids want, everybody yeah. wants, to be able to get them. And you did do a 10 for one split, which I think is what people should do. Why didn't you do that? So it was honestly to make it more affordable for the average uh, stock buyer. 
And so I, like you, believe deeply in empowering a, a more democratic market, whether that's the equities market or the advertising market. And we just want more participants. That's well, exactly what we do. I got to hand it to you because you're doing a lot of things that I think are bold and difficult, and yet you do it with a smile and you do it with joy. Jeff Green, founder and CEO of The Trade Desk. Thank you Thank so you much. Thank you so much, my friend. Appreciate it. Stick around. May I make a suggestion? I would stay with him. The Lightning Round is coming up next. It is time! It's time for the Lightning Round! What is that? And then the Lightning Round is called, Are You Ready? Ski Daddy! The Lightning Round Let's go to Bobby, California. Bobby! Booyah, Jimbo. Bobby from San Jose. Good to have you on the show. Thank you, Jim. I want to know about Cloudflare, N-E-T. I should talk more about Cloudflare because it's got a great security component. It's doing incredibly well. Uh, I just kind of leave it out of the equation. That is my bad, Matthew Prince. I apologize. You've been on the show. You're fantastic. Doug in Oregon, where my my daughter used to live. Doug. Hi, Jim. Hey, Doug. I'm bullish bullish advertisement tech. Um, What about ticker MGNI? Magnite, that's kind of in the... Look, I'm going to say something. People are going to say, Jim, it's not the same. But Magnus, it is in the advertising solution business. And when it comes to advertising solution, I am going to send you to the trade desk. Okay, Scott in Minnesota. Scott! Professor Kramer. Booyah. Booyah. First off, I'd like to thank you for your wisdom and your show for us home investors. Thank you. got the answer from a question last night's show. Which is why I look forward to each episode. Oh, man, you're great. I'm glad you call them episodes because it really is that. We put together an episode every night. And how can I help you, sir? I recently purchased an interest in this company on last week's pullback. But with another 5% slide today, is there concern for BlackBerry? Uh, okay, I, I went over the last quarter pretty closely. And, you know, they have a lot of patents, but it's not a great company. It's a meme stock at times, but I'm not going to tell you to sell it because the memesters are going to get it going in, and it's just not that bad a company. So I think you're okay, but there's no catalyst. Let's go to Brian in Pennsylvania. Brian! Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Brian, Um, I I hear you. What's up? I just want to say uh, my son is a Robinhood day trader. And he turned me on to your show over a year ago, and I've been hooked ever since. I love that, and I hope your son cleans up. Robin Hood is a democratizer, and I love that. He's been doing good. Yeah. Um, Jim, I've got a question. There's a stock that I've, I started buying at the end of December. After some ups and downs, is up about 20% on my average cost. Now, it's six months in with analyst price targets all over the place for this stock. I wanted to get your opinion. Should I sell, hold, or accumulate more of MT materials? Okay, I've gone back and forth with, with Latinsky, he's the CEO, and I, I am, I mean, it, it, look, I wasn't happy with a lot of selling. I am happy with their business. I think the business, raw materials, is good. I hope they can move everything from China. I want you to stick with it, okay? I do not want you to sell MP materials. Rocky in California, Rocky! Booyah, Jimmy Chill from Huffington Beach, Oh, chill man, ready to talk. What's going on? I'm calling about an exciting medical company that's killing cancer cells and extending and saving lives of pancreatic cancer patients. It's relatively inexpensive and growing. It also is working on a COVID booster shot. What's your expert opinion on Immunity Bio, IBR? Okay, Immunity Bio is pure, pure spec, but there is nothing wrong with that. As long as you know it's spec, 
I bless it. Uh, Jimmy Cho blesses it Dubai. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Coming up, pick the apple, bite the apple, own the apple. Just don't trade the apple. Kramer goes Old Testament on Cupertino's naysayers. Next. Thank you for inspiring me to get in the game. Your show is the best. I am so glad you're on TV. I want you to know that you have transformed me. Thank you, Kramer. Jim Kramer, you're one of my heroes. I look forward to your show every weeknight. Thank you so much for helping beginning investors like me. When you talk about the market, I just believe that you're spot on. Oh, I love it. Thank you so much. Every night we watch you, I have learned and earned. Now, now everybody loves Apple again. Up here, the stock's less than a point away from its all-time high. Yet now, people can't get enough of the stock of Apple. Where the heck were these bulls back when Apple was at 116 in early March? What was so wrong with it back then? Well, everything, if you listen to the bears, or at least everything they could throw at the stock to keep regular people like you away from it. When you look back at what people were saying when the stock was nearly 30 points lower, Well, let's just say it's enlightening. Here are some sample headlines from important publications on March 8th. That is the day Apple stock bottomed. Listen to this. Apple falls toward three-month low. Bear market now in sight. (laughs) Not exactly the stuff of opportunity. Now, Apple is famous for muzzling its suppliers. The first rule of Apple Club is don't talk about Apple Club. That makes it difficult to figure out how the company's doing because the suppliers give you nothing. Oh, but that doesn't stop the press from trying. Notice I didn't say lying. Hence this headline from a Japanese publication. Apple slashes planned iPhone mini for first half. The article is devastating. Listen, the U.S. tech giant is cutting orders for all iPhones by about 20% compared to its plans in December, according to sources familiar with the matter. (laughs) Peace goes on to say that Apple initially told its suppliers they needed components to make 100 million units for the first half of the year, but then they cut back to 75 million units. They cap it all off with this line. Apple declined to comment for the story. Ominous! That article appeared in Nikkei Asia on March 10th when Apple's at 119. I have no idea if it was right, but I do know that these kinds of supplier stories are notoriously inaccurate. They're always a major reason I always tell you to own the stock, don't trade it, because these terrifying headlines so often are just dead wrong. The most damning piece appeared in Barron's when Apple's at, Apple stock was 121 bucks. The title. Apple shares are lagging the market. Why the stock could continue to underperform. Okay, so this one's saying that it's going to continue to go down. Happens to be written by a very good writer, Eric Savitz, who I've known for years. This piece kicks off with the sentence, is there something wrong with Apple? Wow. The premise of the story was historical. Not hysterical. Historical. 
At the time, the stock was down more than 9% for the year, and it lagged the S&P by almost 11%. Barron's went right to the most quoted analyst on Apple, Tony Saganetti from uh, Bernstein. He told a reporter that Apple had outperformed last year. Earnings grew, but the stock rallied even more, and said that there are, quote, no obvious factors such as new products that might drive the, drive the stock higher in the immediate future. Wait a second. Wait. How about 5G? with the wireless providers falling all over each other to get this phone to consumers in order to win them over in the hotly competitive American market? I mean, that seems pretty big to me. Finally, quoting Tony's research, the piece argues that Apple's valuation is still rich compared to where it's traded historically. And the company's up against some tough comparisons in the second half for the iPad and the Mac. Here's the last line of the piece. Saganegi's conclusion There's no rush to buy Apple. Now, this Savage article and a similar interview appeared on March 5th when the stock was at 121. Apple fell five points to 116 the next business day after this piece ran. It was the absolute bottom. Of course, not everyone got this wrong. Dan Ives was a bull in the stock and pushed it hard over at Wedbush, recommending it just a couple days after the bottom 119. He made the very smart argument that the sell-off made for a great entry point. But what matters, what galls me is this. It was very hard to pull the trigger on Apple in March when most of the experts were committed to scaring you away from it. Still one reminder that it's simply not worth trying to flit in and out of this great stock. Apple is a fantastic long-term story. So forget about the commentary and simply own the darn thing. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to make to find it for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now.